wrinkles aren't permanent. They are showing that you expressed emotion a lot or you repressed emotion a lot. And I had a lot of repressed grief and I had to do some work on that. And I think the older I got and the more grief I went through, the more I realized people die when they're supposed to die. And if they've lived a good life, what are we grieving? We're grieving our attachment to them. But I have a very different feeling about death. The grief didn't settle in the same way. I didn't repress it. It wasn't something that I held on to because I'd learned how to deal with it better. I don't have the pain of the experience anymore because it's not painful to me anymore. It's just I just had to accept that that's what was and I had to look at what was good about it. So I lost those grief lines. Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the field of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. Lillian Pearl Bridges is the world's preeminent authority on face reading and diagnosis, and in my opinion, a beautiful individual with a magical spirit. I cannot possibly overstate how much I enjoyed this conversation and how pleased I am to share some of her knowledge with you. As the author of Face Reading in Chinese Medicine, Lillian has been studying and practicing the Chinese medicine art of facial diagnosis since the age of five, when her apprenticeship began with her grandmother. She is credited with reviving this nearly lost component of Chinese medicine and bringing it to the West. As the founder of the Lotus Institute, Lillian trains students in her comprehensive face reading and Taoist design programs. She has been featured in numerous publications and shows and lectures around the world. In this episode, we discuss many fascinating topics, but perhaps none that will be more well-received than our ability to erase or lessen wrinkles through personal emotional work. Lillian says that we are never too old to change the landscape of our face through following our purpose, healing emotional wounds, and finding our bliss. We also delve into the pragmatic power of feng shui and harmonizing your life and talk about one of her favorite topics, food. You don't need to know a thing about qi, jing, or ling to glean invaluable pearls of wisdom from this conversation. This episode is where the rubber hits the road on enhancing your life or more aptly, a facial treasure map to finding your inner harmony. I hope you enjoy this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Lillian Pearl Bridges. Lillian, welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. It's great to have you. I want to acknowledge your colleague and one of my past guests, C.T. Holman. He suggested that I connect with you, and I'm grateful that I have, and I'm grateful to you for coming on to the show. I know you're a very busy and sought-out individual in the field of, of Chinese medicine, so it's an honor to have you here today. Thank you. I'm, I'm so, really, I'm so pleased to be here. I think as any place is good to start, but let's just jump into your specialties, if you don't mind. And I don't think many people are familiar with facial diagnosis or facial readings. If they did listen to the podcast with C.T. Holman, they got a little taste of it. But why don't we just start there? Why don't you just tell us a bit about what you do with the facial reading? Okay, well, you know. If, if I could consider, um, well, the best way to tell you what I do is I, I read faces um, and I teach face reading and facial diagnosis. And I, I guess what's really important on facial diagnosis is that it's a, an original part of Chinese medicine. 
Um, if you look back and love ancient texts, and Sabina Wilms has been, you know, very kind to give me lots of information from Sun Tzu Miao and other um, people as well, facial diagnosis was originally part of Chinese medicine. It just got, somehow got separated just a bit. It's in the Neijing. You can see it in the Yellow Emperor's Classic, you know, all over the place. If this color is on your jaw, it means this. If that color's on your jaw, it means that. So it's, so it's everywhere. It's just that it wasn't kept as a body of work that specifically, and my family just happened to keep it as a body of work that they passed on. So I was fortunate enough to learn it and, and now of course teach it. Um, but it's, it's very intrinsic to Chinese medicine. It's part of the looking diagnosis. It's part of the ability to look at someone and then diagnose. And if you look at the history of it, um, there's actually a little statue that the emperor's physician used to use because he wasn't allowed to touch the emperor's wives or you know, concubines or courtesans. And the women would actually point to the statue and then say, this is where it hurts. This is where the problem is. And he'd actually look at things, you know, like, like the face or like the tongue to, to diagnose. Um, eventually they also did peripheral diagnosis, which is like, you know, pulse diagnosis and all that, but they weren't allowed to palpate. So it was a, a very early part of the looking diagnosis. And that's what people need to know. It's, it's not new, it's old, it's really old. <laughs> so That's fascinating. And how did you become so experienced and interested in facial diagnosis? Kind of a funny story. I, um, my mother, you know, is, is Chinese, <clears throat> and she married an American guy, which wasn't well thought of. You know, a good girl from a Chinese fa uh, a Chinese family didn't usually marry foreigners, um, and she did actually get um, disowned by her father. Uh, you know, and she ran away to get married. And but when I was born, my grandmother just insisted on coming to see me, and, and so I kind of broke the I broke the feud, so to speak. So she came, and I have a photo of her looking at me, and I don't know what happened, but we just bonded. And so when I came back from Japan, so Japan as a child, um, I loved my grandmother so much that I sat by her side every single weekend, and she was given face ring by her father because she was a favorite child, and she taught me. And so I watched her read every single person that came in the house and she read all kinds of things, whether it was personality, whether it was, you know, uh, health stuff, whether it was, you know, potential, she would read basically everybody. And she was known for that. And I just sat by her side and watched her and started to learn it and asked lots of questions. And, you know, my aunts and uncles also knew. And so that I got older, I asked them also uh, all kinds of questions. And it's something that I did since the age of five. Wow, that's so cool. So it's this crazy <laughs> family tradition. Yeah, and all your relatives, your aunts, your uncles, they all were familiar with well, it? or they all did. The only problem is my cousins, and I'm one of 18, Nobody learned, none of the cousins learned face except me. And I have no idea how that happened. I just chose to be with my grandmother and learn it. So it's, I mean, they all know a little bit about it, of course, you know, and actually most people of Asian descent know about face reading to some degree or another. If you go to China and you've got really big full earlobes, people will actually grab your earlobes and go, oh, good luck, good luck. You know? so, <laughs> so they do know, they do know some, some details. You know, It's just that my family happened to know a lot about it. So from five years on, you started sitting with Into your grandmother. Right, and, every weekend. Okay. And where was that? Was that in the U.S., in China? Where was yeah, she doing Los Angeles. Los yeah, Angeles. Yeah. My, okay. my whole family came over. Well, most of my family came over. A few stayed in Taiwan. But yeah, my whole family came over. And so I literally saw them every single weekend of my life. Um, and she was doing this. I was in my 20s. Okay. Was she doing this as a career? It was her, was it her occupation? <laughs> no, no, no. She ran a, she ran a, no, she ran a business with, with my grandfather. And one of the things she did was actually interview people. And so I watched her use it for business. I mean, I watched her use it for everything. And she would, she was very funny, actually. And she was very kind. So she wasn't as critical as a lot of the 
pastries I've run into that are also Asian, um, she would she would try to make the best of things and, and, and make people feel good about themselves. And I've, I've kept that traditional life. So it was it was a great fun. I mean, I look back now and think, how did this happen? But it did. And I'm glad. You know? Wow. And how long did you continue to do that with her? Into, into my 20s. <clears throat> she died. <clears throat> excuse me. She died when I was 24. Okay. And until about 22, um, I went, when I finished college is, is when I kind of moved away a little farther and she had a stroke. And so, yeah, I did it every weekend of my life. Seriously. <laughs> so was there any, any doubt for you what you wanted to do as you got older for a oh, career? No, I, I didn't intend to make this a living, actually. In fact, no. my family okay. thinks I'm a little crazy. Um, it's it, it, kind of cute because my my aunt, whenever she sees me, she goes, so how's your fortune telling business going? And I, I want to say it's not fortune telling. For some reason that in her mind, I'm, I'm telling fortunes. Don't ask me. I, I have no idea why. Because there is an aspect of facing that can actually not predict the future, but talk about potential. But I, I actually don't do that as a, as a matter of course um, <clears throat> very often. I mean, I do help people figure out more about where they want to go, but not, not in a way where I tell them you know, what's going to happen. And what happened was I was engaged to be married and um, I told my then almost fiance, because I wouldn't get engaged without approval, that he had to meet my family. And I warned him he had to run through a gauntlet of people who were really going to evaluate them. And I knew they were probably going to speak in Chinese, in Chinese. So he came to my grandparents' house and my uncle opened the door and looked at his face and said, oh my, you almost died when you were 25. Were you sick or was it an accident? Because you were, you, were, you were down for quite a while, almost the whole year. So what happened to you? And his face just kind of turned white. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, well, it's right there on your forehead, 25, this big line. He said, something big happened. And he said, and it happened to your body. So, so what happened? He said, well, I had Guillain-Barre syndrome. And he was, you know, he was in bed. He was actually um, really sick. And he was so shocked. And so, you know, he went, the rest of the family just talked to him and whatever. And they read him and they said a lot of things in Chinese as well. But the funny thing was, as we were leaving, um, I mean, they gave, gave me, they gave me the okay. They gave me some warnings and said, okay, you can marry him. But in the car on the way, on the way back, he said to me, what is this? And I said, well, it's face reading. Like, I, to me, it was perfectly normal because I was raised with it. To him, it was like the most astonishing thing ever. He said, look, do you do this? And I go, well, yeah, of course. And he said, well, why don't you do something with it? I said, like what? He said, well, you want to write, I said, I want to, be, I want to write. To write a book. I go, well, that's a good idea. <laughs> so I started writing a book because I didn't know what I knew until I tried to write it down. And it took me a long time to write the book because I wasn't taught, you know, this means this and this means that. I was taught this, 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 and this equal that. So I had to, t I had to pull apart like all the different things that came together to do a reading. And that was really hard work. And that was really hard because the Chinese aren't linear in that way, you know, in, in face reading. They don't say this means this and this means that. So when people try to do that, I kind of go, uh, it's actually this and this and this equal that. <laughs> so stubbornness is a multi, you know, multi-trait, not one trait. So for you, there was no formal training. It was all basically a mentorship with your relatives. Is that correct? It was, it was all kind of a traditional apprenticeship. That's right. And I lived a lot. And then you took that and you dis distilled it down so you could write a book and use that to help institutions teach and help right. people to learn. Well, what happened was I took a class. One of my girlfriends convinced me to take a class on writing nonfiction. And I took a class. It was UCLA you know, where I graduated in psychology. And I took this you know, weekend workshop and the professor 
mentor who was a psychologist had said something like, you know, make yourself a, you know, a, an expert in the eyes of a publisher. And I went up to him and I said, I don't, I don't know if I'm an expert. He said, well, how long have you been doing this face And I said, well, since I was five. He goes, these are laughing. He said, if you're not an expert, <laughs> nobody is. I, I said, well, what do I do? He said, teach a class. He said, start teaching. I said, okay. And I, you know, very naively, I called up this bookstore nearby and said, I'm writing a book on face and I want to, I want to give a presentation. And they go, oh yeah, sure. We have a cancellation like in two weeks. Can you do it? And I go, okay. And afterwards I went, what did I just do? And I taught my first class and it was really fun. And I thought, I like this. So I kept, they invited me back. I kept doing it. Next thing you know, I thought, I'd like to teach junior college. I think this would be a really good class for people in junior college. And my then husband said to me, you can't do that. I, I go, why not? It's an interesting subject. It could be like just for fun, you know, and, and I proved him wrong. And, you know, I taught at a junior college and in that junior college course that I kept teaching and teaching, um, someone came from an acupuncture school, um, one of the heads of the student um, union, basically, and said, would you come teach for the students? I said, sure, I'd be happy to, because in my face reading training, I learned a lot of Chinese medicine as well. And Taoist philosophy and all that. So I ended up teaching at a, at, I think it was Samra. And um, the dean liked it so much, she hired me to teach a class. And that that was the beginning. And then I ended up teaching at you know, Pacific, Pacific Symposium very shortly afterwards. And I just kept teaching. And I've taught pretty much all over the world. Um, and I teach for for medicine, of course. I mean, and Chinese medicine, as well as business. And I've, I've applied it lots of ways. My favorite, of course, is Chinese medicine. <laughs> Wow. So you ended up writing and publishing face reading and Chinese medicine. When was that first published and how long did it take you to, to complete that work? It was published in 2003 and it took me over 20 years to get, get it ready. Wow. <laughs> I mean, mind you, I also had ch small children and all that, but it took me a really long time. Um, I mean, nearly 20, I think 23 years or something to uh, 22 years to get it written and then I had to rewrite it to sell it, but it, it was a long haul. And so it was a lot of work. And I think what I really enjoy is the teaching forced me to find out what I knew because I, I, I'd embodied so much of it. And I really, to this day, love very hard questions. So when somebody asks me something that's really hard, even if I say, I, I, I don't, I'm not sure, I, I, I don't know, let me think about it. And then I find it, it's like, it's so fun. <laughs> you know, it's, it really makes me happy to realize I know more than I thought I knew, it was great. And was that the book that you started working on originally, or were there some some previous publications? Well, I actually did. I did publish um, some other. I was in other books, like I I helped um, contribute something to one of Gabriel Strux's books, and I was you know I was in other um, books in Chinese medicine in, in chapters. Like for example, in, in Germany, there were several books, one on stress and one on aging that I contributed chapters to. But that was my first book, and then of course I re rewrote it. Um, to add more diagnosis, um, so it came out in 2012. But yeah, it's it's I created a <laughs> I created a profession for myself and a profession for my students as well. I, I literally am quite proud of that. I was very surprised that it happened, but I used to say if you can make a living doing face reading, you can make a living doing anything. And I guess what I'm I'm most proud of is you know bringing back a lot of the information to Chinese medicine and and teaching it to practitioners. It makes me very happy to have people using it in the in the clinic. I've had a lot of writers on the podcast from Lonnie Jarrett to Peter Dedman to C.T. Holman and Jason Robertson. What was that process like for you, though? 23 years, that's a huge chunk of time. And finally to complete it, yeah. what was that like for you? There Was it joy, sadness, relief? I have to tell you, writing is really hard work. And I luckily like to work hard. You know, I, 
a lot of my students talk to me about writing and I say to them, look, to me, it's wonderful that you love words, that you love to communicate and all that. That's, I mean, that's really wonderful and important. And the desire to write needs to be there. I said, but the hardest thing to master is actually the persistence that's required. To me, it's the most watery trait of all. It's kind of like the, you know, the, the drop of rain that keeps on falling on the stone over the years that eventually the stone, you know, makes this like little hole, right? Because it's, it's persistence and you just keep at it and you keep, and you keep coming back to it, coming back to it, coming back to it. It's hard work. And to me, it's like, it's worse than an elephant birth, you know, it takes years. And um, all I can tell you is there's also a postpartum phase where after you finish writing, you feel so empty because like what do you do then you know it's like like it, it feels so empty and 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 the actual final process where you're in the publication of it is really stressful you know all the editing and working with you know publishers and all that. it's very very stressful even if you publish yourself it's very stressful so to me it's very equivalent mm. to to giving birth um and it's also really kind of um it's so intense that it's also very personal and so even though i was writing nonfiction, there are still stories in there that i, I put in and one in particular, which still makes me laugh, I wrote a story about my mom unintentionally um, didn't feed me enough as a baby because she listened to the doctor's orders and the doctor didn't know that I was a child and still am a person who needs to eat more often. So she fed me on a schedule and I was like really hungry and I was screaming and crying. And so it was very difficult. And so she, she hired a nanny and I, you know, the nanny said she's hungry and more intuitive, you know, kind of um, caretaking. And I wrote that in my book, saying that I had an issue about not having enough food. I've always had a fear about that. So I always carry some bars in my purse in case I go out. I have a fully stocked cupboard. It's like you could probably live off my, my cupboard for, I don't know, maybe a month or two, probably, because, you know, in case of an earthquake comes to my house, you know. And it comes back from that early childhood trauma, which, you know, is nonverbal. There's just this desire, right? So after I wrote that, I didn't think much about it. I just thought, well, I'll just, I'll just add, a, you know, an early childhood story. I had students showing up wherever I was in the world, students would show up with food. They would bring me food gifts and they still do. So many people saw that story. <laughs> I mean, had one guy who was so sweet. He pulled garlic out of his, out of his yard, a garden to bring me garlic. And it still had dirt on it. He said, I know you really love food. I have the best garlic. I said, thank you so much. <laughs> Can I take this you know, across, the, across the world in my suitcase? You know, I, ended up having, I, used, I used it, I cooked it, you know, but, but I, I still laugh about that because people read that and it's like, whoa that's personal i didn't realize how personal it was but it's like whoa <laughs> and <laughs> was the book met with great fanfare or was it a, a slow climb to gain popularity i knew this would happen it's actually a bestseller in the genre which is kind of funny i didn't realize that for a long time it took a long time it's like it was it was slow it was like I think the biggest year I had was the year I was on Dr. Oz, which was, I think, 2015, I think it was. And, and that was the big year for sales. You know, that was my best year. The other years, of course, I sold it to people in Chinese medicine. That sold to people that weren't in Chinese medicine. Um, but yeah, it was a slow, it was a slow go. Um, the second book certainly sold faster because people were already familiar with me. Um, and I did, <clears throat> excuse me, I did a lot of traveling where I taught literally all over the world to, to publicize the book because, you know, as you may know, publishers these days don't have a market, I mean, don't have a budget for marketing. And so you kind of have to do your own. And so I did, that's what I did for years. And now I'm, I'm kind of relieved I'm home and, you know, it's locked down and I'm tired and I'm <laughs> recovering, <laughs> not traveling, it's actually kind of good. Let's, if you don't mind, let's dive in a bit to face diagnosis and face reading. Is it, are they interchangeable as far as terminology, face diagnosis and face reading? 
I, I think so. I mean, but some people want to differentiate because face chewing is more about the personality and facial diagnosis is more about the health. But I think they're interrelated. Like, for example, if you look at pain lines, there is no way to distinguish whether it's physical pain or emotional pain because they're the same thing, to, and really. And there's no mind-body disconnect in Chinese medicine. It's all the same stuff. You know, it's all the body. So, so I, okay. yeah, I don't differentiate. Well, that's a good place to start. Let's talk about pain lines. What are they? They are the lines that um, are uh, that are diagonal across the outer canthus of the eye. So they kind of go from the top of the ear, you know, on the side of the eye, down towards the nose. I mean, they're not that long, but they're 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 there um, on the sides, you know, that go into the cheek a little bit. And they come from wincing. When I was a kid, I was told in order to understand how wrinkles were formed, I had to make those faces and think about when I made those faces and what I felt like when I made those faces. And one of the things that you can do when you start to make those pain lines, it comes from wincing really hard. And so when you see those lines, you know, on the outside of the eye there, diagonal um, into the cheek, cheek area, it's a sign that someone has chronic pain. And it's just something to be aware of, and especially diagnostically, because a lot of people try to minimize how much pain they're actually in, um, or they may actually have a higher pain tolerance. And so when they're talking about pain, their pain is really big. Um, and so I, I talk to practitioners a lot about watching this, especially on the left side, because the left side is more of the private side. I mean, hold slightly more there. And so people who come in who say, I'm in pain, if you look for the pain lines, that tells you how long they've had. If it's, if it's been a long time, then they'll be very deep. If, it, if it's mild, it'll be more kind of fainter and, and more red. It's newer, you know. And if it's very new, it might just be pink in that area because it's, it's definitely, you know, being activated, but it may not have so much of the lines yet. And um, the other thing that it means, which is interesting, um, is it's a sign that the body needs more fat. Um, fat buffers the, the myelin, you know, fat, fat buffers pain, and the myelin sheath is, is made of essential fatty acids. So almost always, I'll tell people if they have pain lines, they need to increase their fat intake. And so there's, you know, things like that you can see very easily. There's multiple factors. And, and one of the ways that I do, because I'm not an acupuncturist, you know, um, one of the ways I do treat is talk a little bit about, you know, um, lifestyle and yangsheng, especially I like food. So I will talk about food if I, if I do know what can help them. And in that particular case, I do know that means a lack of fat. Let's talk about that for a second. Fat buffers pain. What do you mean by that? And is this physiologically speaking or esoterically? Yeah, that's a, that's a, it's, it's, it's one of the things that you'll see too. And people have lots of trauma often they'll, they'll gain a lot of weight. Um, I was talking to an uh, orthopedic surgeon one time and he actually he verified this for me. Um, I was teaching this group of doctors back in Michigan at the University of Michigan. And he said to me that he, it's very well known amongst orthopedic surgeons that when you have a patient who has more weight, they um, feel less pain um, after surgery than those who are too skinny. And the Chinese have this really unusual idea in modern society about what you should look like to be healthy. And they actually believe that you have basically one knuckle of flesh. My mom used to call it pinch an inch. You should be, you should be able to pinch an inch of flesh all over your body without pain. And that was the buffer that kept you from feeling too much pain. And so it's, it's you know, validated with some scientific studies, too. I mean, the, the brain certainly needs cholesterol, and the myelin sheath certainly needs essential fatty acids. So there's this idea that fat really helps um, buffer um, pain. And one of the things that happens when you have a lot of pain is you lose weight. It's considered, in Chinese medicine, it's considered a famine condition, okay. along with high fevers. And so you want to actually protect against a family condition by having a little extra weight. So the Chinese don't think skinny is good at all. They think plump is good. 
And does this have anything to do with the idea of like the jolly fat guy? And in, in China, there's often little statues of laughing heavier the people. Buddha, yeah. Yeah. Wow. yeah, no, they, they prefer plumpness. My uncle, who's very much a Chinese scholar, one time said to me, he said, you know, it's only two people who survive a famine. And I said, well, there's no famines in, in the world now. He goes, oh, yes, there are. Because that's what he told me, you know, pain, you know, chronic pain and, and a fever of more than two days is considered a famine condition, right? And he said to me, if you have extra weight, you could live off it. So the people who live, you know, who survive the best in a famine are those who, you know, have some weight and those who are woody and go out and hunt and you know, gather and whatever. So he said, you know, the earth and, earth and wood do best in a famine. And he used to say things like that to me. I was just raised, raised in a very funny family. It's <laughs> oh, incredible. And I love this. What, how would you distinguish between pain lines and laughter lines at the outer cantus? Well, laugh lines are from the outer canthus going upwards and sadness lines are the ones going downwards and, and the pain lines cross the sadness lines. Okay. So they literally, you know, are a different diagonal. Okay. Okay. They come from the outside in, whereas, whereas um, sadness lines come from the inside out and joy lines come from the inside out as well. And, and they kind of go together, you know, it's, it's the up and down of the fire element. And, and I really like, I really like joy lines. I think they're great. Um, I love to see people who have joy lines. They're really hard to get rid of anyway, so you might as well just own them. And they, you've laughed and smiled a lot. So it's like, what's wrong with that? You know? <laughs> yeah. And I've always, I can always tell when I see an older person, at least I think I can tell what kind of life they've lived just by looking at their oh, face. And totally. It, there's, a, there's a funny saying, it's, it's very similar to the one that Coco Chanel said. My grandmother said it a little bit differently. She said, you know, from, from birth until the age of 25, you have a face that your mother gave you, right? So it's, it's kind of like the Jing thing. She said from 25 to 50, you know, um, you create your own face. You come out and, and be your own person. And from 50 on, you're the face that you, you made hmm. or you created, right? And so the face you deserve is another way of putting it. Um, and I still laugh about that because I think about this a lot and think, you know, so when I turned to 50, I thought, so what does my face say? Have I like laughed enough? Have I, you know, <laughs> do, do I have things that show how I've lived? And it's like, I remember thinking I had a lot of grief lines because I've had a lot of death in my life. And, uh, you know, I have a fairly big family, but a lot of people have died and they, they, they die in clusters, you know, and I had a lot of grief lines. And I thought I really have to process my grief. And I have to tell you from, I have a photo of me, I think around 47, 48, I had a lot of lines and now I have way less. And it's because I did processing. This is part of the way I, I taught CT. Wrinkles aren't permanent. Um, they are showing that you, you expressed emotion a lot or you repressed emotion a lot. And I had a lot of repressed grief and I had to do some work on that. And I think the older I got and the more grief I went through, the more I realized Something like, you know, people die when they're supposed to die. And if, if they've lived a good life, like, what are we grieving? We're grieving our, you know, our, our attachment to them. But I personally think they're still with us in some ways, especially the memories. And I, I've ha I have a very different feeling about death. And I just had a whole series of deaths happen last year with my, uh, my aunt and my um, uncle and my mother <clears throat> and also my two dogs and my cat wow. all died. Um, it, was a, it was a tough couple of years there. And um, all I can tell you is I didn't suffer in the same way, mostly because my aunt and my uncle, and my mom were old. And so are my dogs and my cat. My cat was 21. So it's like, I, I just have a different perspective now. And the grief didn't settle in the same way. I didn't repress it. Um, I obviously expressed it, but it wasn't, it wasn't something that I held on to because I, I learned how to deal with it better. Hmm. So I lost those grief lines. It makes me very happy because my lung function is so much better. Well, I'm sure a lot of people are going to be listening intently to that. So you changed 
basically the wrinkles on your face by dealing with your emotional, by, by grieving, by dealing with your emotions. Yeah, I lost them. That's incredible. Yeah, I used to also, well, as an example, because those are wrinkles caused by expression, but I had some wrinkles at the very top of my forehead, which was when I was 20, um, three and tw 24 years old, where my father died, my grandmother died, and both my grandfathers died. So that was the first big bundle of people that died. And I did not do that one well. And I suffered terribly with that one. I was in grief. That, that's the grief that I held on to for a long, long time. My father, I thought, died too young. He was only 54. And so I had these big lines across my forehead saying that was a terrible time. Uh, I also had a huge breakup. It was a very, very difficult relationship. So I was suffering. And I didn't, I didn't think those lines would go away because they're age markings or they're when trauma happens to a certain age. <clears throat> but when I did my, obviously with therapy, some, some really deep processing of grief, those lines lessened as well. So this is why I don't wear bangs anymore. Cause I used to be embarrassed. Those lines were no. so deep and <laughs> they haven't gone away well there, but they're very faint. So it marks that it was a really hard time on me, but I don't have the pain of the experience anymore because it's not painful to me anymore. It's just, I just had to accept that that's what was. And I had to look at what was good about it. You know, there's mm. kind of a, a weird kind of graduation that occurs when you have, you know, like your father die or your mother is terrible, but it's, but it is something where you, you step into your own a bit more, <coughs> which is sometimes, you know, growing, gr growing experience. Yeah. Can you, and I, I don't, ex you don't need to go into many personal or any personal details, but I'm curious just about the process of dealing with the grief. You said you, you did some grief processing and I'm just curious what type of work you did. Right. Well, grief is, grief is a tough one. I mean, it lowers immune function in milliseconds. So there's lots of studies that show that. I, I love to find studies that back up Chinese medicine. It makes me terribly happy. It's like, oh, I love that. <laughs> and I, I know that with grief, um, it's certainly as I, as the weichi area, which is the, you know, the area of the face that is bound by the cheekbone, the nose, the side of the mouth, you know, the, and a little bit of the chin and some of the jaw. That, that's the whole weichi area, the whole cheek of the face. It has primarily the, the lungs as the top half. And so I always knew that the lungs were a very important part of the Wei Qi immune system. And I know I had too much grief and I know that I, I, my Wei Qi was compromised because of it. So I knew that I had to do some process work. And, and what my grandmother used to say to me, which is really a, a great saying, she said, there's no such thing as a bad emotion. The only bad emotion is a stuck emotion or repressed emotion. And she believed that that was the cause of trapped fire, which I still also believe. Um, and so she would, she would say to me that you, know, you have to feel what you feel when you feel it express it and then let it go mm -hmm. and that was a really strong piece of advice from her and she you know she in her 80s she had very few wrinkles and i'm trying to emulate that i think because i don't i don't know that we should hold on to things in that way and it's like some people can can look at the past and think oh that was that divorce was fantastic for me i'm so glad i got divorced i can't imagine being with that person it was really a terrible relationship you know I, but i learned a lot and it's like and, and it was really good for me to experience that because I, I you know, found my independence and I found all those wonderful things, right? But even though they think it was good and they're glad that it was, it's over, they hold on to the pain of it. And that's the thing that I think is the most important part to work on. And so what I did, I mean, a couple of things. I mean, number one, whenever grief would come up, I would just do it. I didn't, 
I repressed it in the beginning and I'm very good at repressing grief. This is one of those emotions I hold well because I'm very metallic in nature. So I would repress it, but whenever it would come up, I went, I'm going to do it. Like you never know what's going to come up. I was in a shopping hall one time and the, my father's favorite song went on the radio and I just burst out crying. It's very rare for me to cry in public. I don't like it. <clears throat> don't want to do it. I just thought, Oh my gosh, so I ran to my car and I just cried. And I thought, I thought, okay, this is good. This is good because it, it, it brought up something that I hadn't worked through yet. So whenever it came up, I, you know, I, I worked on it. Um, I also did some therapy and I'm, I, I, multiple kinds, I might add. And I will say acupuncture has been proven, of course, to release trauma, which is why I encourage CT to write his book. Um, and also I did EMDR as well, which is, um, rapid eye movement, and I did not do cognitive behavioral therapy for trauma, although that also is, has been proven to be quite good. I did other kinds of talk therapy. And my, my reasoning was um, EMDR often handles things that are even younger um, because, and acupuncture as well, it can, it can do more with um, the pre-verbal stuff, which I think is the biggest stuff. And talk therapy is really good for the post-verbal stuff. So I did both um, forms, you know, and I, spent a long time working on it and, and mind you it's like it's not easy it's not easy um but these days i can look back on some of the hardest things that have happened to me not 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 just deaths i mean other things as well like you know, breakups and all that where i don't have um the same um pain that i used to have and and in fact there's very little pain at all in fact i, I said to one person one of my relationships one that was so difficult i would love to go find him and thank him for what i learned because it was probably one of the most important relationships of my life, even though it's hard. So I've reversed it, which is a, which is a very important concept where you, you start seeing all of the good that they came out of the bad. And that's something that I, I do a lot. I, I reverse things. <laughs> I call it making a pearl, you know, you <laughs> Oh, that's so important. and so hard to do. I find in real time to be able to recognize that the universe is providing you with a learning opportunity but I do find that if right and and I always say don't don't kill the messenger you call you call the messenger in right right. <laughs> right yeah it's all those hardships all those challenges they are opportunities for growth and without those we're as in in terms of Chinese medicine we're a bit stuck we're a bit stagnant so right. so those hardships do right. do help with growth your grandmother's advice feel what you feel when you feel it express it then let it go that's so beautiful so it is deep she, she was amazing for saying one of my favorite things that she said which i love this one so much i it's been, it's been coming up this last you know couple of weeks she used to say the stairway to heaven goes two ways if you are going to find enlightenment and you and you get a piece of enlightenment you got to remember to go back and share it mm. go back down the staircase and share it wow <laughs> And I just love that. I thought if you learn something, you have to share it. You know, it's like, you don't just keep it for yourself and go, oh, I know something. It's like, go back, you know, go back. It's kind of like Plato's cave. Go, you know, they got out of the cave, go back and share it with those who didn't get out of the cave. Wow. How to get out, yeah. you know? So you- It's just wonderful. Yeah. yeah. You speaking of grief and you mentioned CT, it reminded me when I had him on the podcast, I asked him to do a on the spot little face rating for me. And he, I believe he said that by looking under my eyes, he was able to see that I had some repressed grief. And that surprised me because I'm, I certainly can't think of what that would be. Uh, I haven't had. Well, there's, there's several different kinds. Yeah. Okay. 
And I'll just, let me tell you a little bit of a story. So I went to Sweden one time and taught a group of acupuncturists, all of whom were, I think almost all of them were over 40. And there was a lot of grief on their faces. And I said, so why do you guys have so much grief? And I was, I was kind of surprised. And someone said, well, the tsunami. The tsunami had happened in Thailand, I don't know, maybe a year and a half before, or two years before, something like that. And I said, the tsunami? And they said, well, yeah, a lot of Swedish people were in the tsunami. They were in Thailand. And I said, oh my, and one of the women was there. She actually was in the tsunami in, in, in uh, Sri Lanka. And one of the guys actually been in the tsunami in Phuket. And I said, oh, I said, I didn't know that. I didn't know there were so many Swedes there. Almost everybody there had either known someone besides those two or lost someone in, in the tsunami. And so we had an interesting talk about it, but, but, or they knew someone who knew someone. And I said to them, I said, okay, look, here's one of the issues that I think is really important. You can feel compassion for people around the world. There's, a, there's an earthquake in Chengdu or, you know, whatever it is, a landslide in Pakistan, you can feel compassion for them. But if it doesn't affect you personally, you're not supposed to take it on and feel it personally. So I said, what I'd like you all to do tonight is go home and think about any of the grief that you might have that's not personal you can let go of. And I said, except for the two that were in the tsunami or people who lost good friends in the tsunami, the rest of you need to do, you know, feel compassion. And then if you can do something to help those, those families, those people, you know, the, the, the places so they came back the next day and a lot of people had already started losing wrinkles. I mean, I've actually seen wrinkles leave really fast. Um, sometimes in an hour consultation, wrinkles start to go. It's like, it's, the face is, 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 in my opinion, a holograph. And we morph very quickly sometimes when we're ready. Anyway, they all came back and, and, and one guy said to me, you know, I, I realized I was carrying my mom's grief. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, my mom won't grieve for my dad's death. So I've been grieving, of course, because it was my dad, but I've been grieving really big. So she'll grieve with me and she won't. And I said, well, you're not responsible for her grief. She's going to do it however she does it. And it sounds like she probably repressed it. And so there's really not much you can do. In fact, I often warn people you very often can't help those that are closest to you. You can help perfect strangers wonderfully. The people closest to you are really hard. I said, let go of her, that extra grief because do your own, you know? So I, I, I had this big talk. And so really I've, I've said that ever, I've told that story ever since they all let me, um, but a lot of grief can go rather quickly. There is, however, a different grief that's a little harder to access because that's the grief that comes from the outer canthus of the eyes down the cheeks, right? And if it goes just right over the cheeks, it's like sorrow. It goes over that down into the cheek area, it's grief. <clears throat> it's, it's, it's grief of losing others. There's another one that comes from the inner canthus closer to the nose that makes the cheeks sink ever so slightly near the nose. And this is a very personal grief. And it's, it often belongs to people, and I have it too, belongs to people who know that they haven't yet done what they know they're here to do. It has to do with Ming. Hmm. And so it's, it's a grief that's not very describable, and it's actually not something that's very accessible. It's some deep belief that the Ming hasn't been fully manifested. And it may be partially manifested, but it still doesn't feel quite like you've done what you came here to do, which is kind of a good thing because you want to do it over time, not, not too fast or you won't have a, you know, a meaning, but, but it's, it's a deep personal grief. And it's, it's probably what he was talking about. Cause that's, that's what I see in your faces right here. Just that, that, that you have more to do. You might have like a, a book to write or two or three, or you know, there's <laughs> things that you want to do. You haven't fully done yet. Yeah. I can resonate with that entirely. <laughs>
Okay. Then you understand where it comes from. Okay. And as you do it, the 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 area will fill in. Wow. And so you said between 25 and 50, we kind of are making the face that we, we have into our elder years. But what if someone is in their 70s or 80s and still doing those things that fulfill them or, or finally doing those things? Will, will that change? It's never too late to do your Ming. That's all I can tell you. I had a, I had a client one time. She was 65 years old. She retired from being a school teacher. She goes, I want to be an artist. I was an art teacher for years. And she said, Oh, I just really want to, I said, well, go for it. I was like, now you have time. And there's a, there's um, kind of a saying in Chinese about um, when you tame the dragon, which is taming your, taming your you know, biological desires, which is after androgen pause or menopause, um, you can actually become more powerful, that you become the most potentially spiritual and creative person that you can be. So it's after 50. And she went for it. And in 10 years time, she was a sculptor and she had sold um, a sculpture to the Franklin Mint, which was, uh, it was a bas relief kind of sculpture. And to her, that was the pinnacle. It's like she was, and they bought, they wanted to buy more. And she said, I made it, I made it. Thank you for your encouragement. And I, I just said, well, that's what you're supposed to do. And finally you got to do it. And so there's a saying that I, um, that I work with a lot because I, I do what I call golden path rings, trying to help people find their meaning and then live it. And then the golden path is just a kind of a Taoist symbolism of becoming this, your golden self. Then the path glows gold because you're, you're glowing. Um, but the thing that's, that's important about that is that um, it's never too late to, to start. And the longer you wait to do your Ming, the faster it goes. So for example, if you're seven years old, go, I want to be a doctor, you still have to go to middle school and high school and college and you know, medical school before you can become a doctor. But if you decide at a later age, after having much experience in something that you really want to do more of that, you've already done it, it goes fast. So I've seen people go really fast after 50. And I don't think age is, is, the, is detrimental to, to Ming. <laughs> I think it's helpful. Hmm. I love that. That's great. Yeah, that's great. It gives you hope, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I have time. <laughs> I've got a lot to think about. Repress grief. In what ways might it show up? You did mention some, but are there other ways that repressed grief could show up or does it? Well, you know, as you know, every emotion belongs to an organ. And normally if that organ is very strong, it can control the expression or the repression of that emotion. So, you know, if for example, your lungs are really strong, you can actually do grief quite well. You can also repress grief quite well. If, however, the lungs get tired of holding grief, it might push it down to the large intestine. So you'd be surprised how often I can find grief in the large intestine. That sounds really strange. I don't look for it. Literally, I look for it, you know, mm -hmm. figuratively. But, but I can find, you know, trapped emotions in certain places. And if, however, the lungs aren't very strong, <clears throat> it might actually send the grief to a different organ. So, so one of the issues is um, sometimes we have displaced emotions and it, it happens even more often with livers and, and anger. <clears throat> if you don't have a very strong liver and you have really strong anger and you don't know what to do with it, often you'll repress the anger someplace else. So a lot of trapped fire is trapped anger in the wrong place. And so I, I find that a lot. And um, the other issue is sometimes emotions get attached to each other. So for example, if you have grief plus guilt or grief plus anger, it's really hard to clear the grief unless you figure out that you're also holding on to another emotion. <clears throat> this is something I figured out for myself because I, 
um, I'll just I'll just tell this is personal again, but I, I remember these stories because they're mine. But I've had you know a lot of issues with my large intestine, and I used to think it was something that was wrong with it, and I used to go and get you know all kinds of treatment, and nothing really helped until I forgot what happened. But one day, I was having an argument with my then husband, and I realized right afterwards that my intestines kind of went crazy, and I went, I wonder if there's anger that's actually you know precipitating this <clears throat> kind of like. IBS attack, right? <clears throat> so I started paying attention. And every time I would, and I don't get mad very often. I don't have very big eyebrows. I'm not an angry person most of the time. And I, I would get mad. I would, my IBS would blow up. And I thought, there's something here. So I started realizing, because my uncle had told me years ago, something not so nice. If you have a pig liver, it's like, oh, great. In other words, my liver wasn't, <laughs> it doesn't digest fat well is what it meant, but, but, but my liver is not that strong. And so he, he would say to me, you know, be careful, you take care of your liver. So, you know, I, I do, but, but my liver isn't very strong, so it didn't do anger very well. And I mean, if someone's angry around me, not even at me, I, I will get exhausted. It's like my liver just gets wiped out from anger. So I wasn't able to do it very much. So when I did it and it, and I didn't do very well, I would repress some of it all, almost always. It would go to my intestines. That's, that's the organ that would take it. Don't ask me why, but that's where it went. And when I realized that, I started working with my liver more and my ability to express anger. And I started doing things like saying that I was upset sooner. Like I remember one time he would say something, and I went, ouch. And he goes, what, what, ouch? I go, that hurt. He goes, what hurt? I said, what you just said. He goes, why? <laughs> I realized he had no idea he hurt me. But I, but I told him that because it was going to make me angry. I could feel it. I started just saying things faster and more often. It's like, oh, that's irritating or whatever it was. And my intestines got so much better. So all those years, the presenting symptom had been my colon. And the real issue is my liver that wasn't handling the anger well. And so now my intestines are a lot better off. That's all I can tell you. They're a lot better off because I know my liver is what needs the support. So I really work with my liver a lot. Um, for a while there, I was actually doing really small shots of eau de vie. <laughs> or or like vodka no, seriously, i was trying to make my liver happy just right. i wanted to give it a little tension but not very much a little tiny it was such a tiny shot it was like maybe one you know one eighth of a shot or something just to make my liver like work and distilled alcohol is quite good for helping the liver get a little feisty right <laughs> so this makes me think that there are things people can do for self-care by evaluating their own face and wrinkles is that correct? Uh, Absolutely. Can you give us some examples? Yeah, the one I have a master facing program, and I I don't advertise this, but one of the really unusual side effects is that almost everybody in the class loses wrinkles. So we always do before and after pictures because it's really fun. And the other thing is they do a lot of um, transformation that I don't advertise because who knows what's going to happen. I can't promise transformation, but a lot of people find that when you learn a lot about yourself, it automatically, you know, creates that transformation. I think, I think the Tao Te Ching has a saying, something like, if I paraphrase, I apologize if I, if I slaughter it. It's something like, to know others is to become wise and to know yourself is to become enlightened. And I think one of the things I'm really um, quite happy about in terms of face doing is that it really makes you understand yourself. And then it stops so much of the projection that you have on other people, you know, because projection often comes from what we don't like in ourselves. And it allows you to see other people so much more clearly, um, not only because you know yourself, but also because th there are markers and there's indicators of personality, of, of past emotions, of, of past experiences that can give you some really great insight. I mean, I have psychologists who use the, the, the map of life experiences to help them find trauma fast. They can go in and say, okay, I see something at five. 
I mean, you can talk about that. And I think that's a wonderful use of it. I mean, the, the map of life experiences is what's, what CT uses probably the most um, because it shows when trauma occurred. And, and, and the issue is, it's not what happens to you, it's how you feel about what happens to you. Everything's personal. Hmm. <laughs> what happens, how you feel about what happens to you is more important than what happened. So it's a personal, it's a personal um, experience that counts. So how did your uncle do that with your then fiance? How did he know that at 25 years of age? It was pretty funny, actually. It's not, it's, not that, it's not that hard. 25 is across the middle of the forehead. And there was like a half a line that said for half of the year, he was in really bad shape. It was a, it was a deep line. And I remember one time, that same group of doctors I mentioned earlier, I was teaching that group of doctors in um, Michigan. And they were having trouble with the facial map, the map of life experiences. And, you know, my, my, I've, I've evolved over time and I finally have now realized that I talk about tree rings. If you can read, if a dendrologist can read tree rings and find out what happened in a certain year, there was a fire this year, lots of water that year, lots of sunshine that year, they can read trees. There is absolutely no reason why you can't read faces. And so faces are like, you know, like, like, like the tree rings, right? You can see what happened to you at certain ages. And what happens is, as a face reader, you can't really tell exactly what happened. You can tell how old someone is and how severe it was. And then I have to ask, you know, what happened? And sometimes they don't remember and they remember later, but it's, it's an extraordinary map. And so I was in this group, I said, and, and they were struggling with the age map. I, I could see some of them with the, you know, their mouths were kind of tight and their eyes were narrowing. Going, I don't know about this. I said, okay, let me, let me give you an example. And I point, it's about 15 people, 15 doctors. And I said, let me point, point this out. I said, all of you have a very similar marking mid to late 20s, except for you, 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 and you. And I said, what were you all doing in your mid 20s? And someone raised his hand and said, medical school. I said, exactly. I said, that one, he went early. That one, that one, and that one, they went late. And they all went, we did. And I said, I know, because medical school marks. Marks really well. If you think about you know, and also residency, it's hard, and so you mark it. And there's this mark I used. To, I now call it like the doctor's band. You know, <laughs> it's like there's a mark. It's pretty easy to see. <laughs> so for me, I anytime I often when I see myself in a photo, I'll have transverse lines across my forehead, which I don't really notice the rest of the time because when I'm looking in the mirror, they're not there. So what right. would something like that, is that part of what you're talking about? Those are like map lines? Yeah. That... They're mostly horizontal lines or specific markings. And that's things that have happened to you in your 20s. Now, the good news is the ones in your 20s in the forehead that cross the central meridian, you know, the Ren channel, yeah. um, they're actually things that you learn really strongly. So they're actually really good. Um, you just have held on to a bit of the the stress of the experiences that you went through, but otherwise they're, they're quite good lines. So if I unlearn those you things, learn a lot. if I unlearn those things, do those lines go away? You know, <laughs> all you have to do is to let go of the stress and or pain huh. of the experience. And by the way, good stress marks as well as bad. Like I had this one client years ago who was an Olympic athlete who won a medal and he came to me afterwards and said, what am I going to do now? I, I said, well, what do you want to do now? And he said, well, how do you ever come back from a peak experience? And I said, well, you could have other peak experiences. But he literally was, he was in a, a huge funk because yeah. he didn't know what to do with himself, you know? And like that peak experience was almost too high, you know? Yep. So you'll see a lot of retired athletes have that issue. It's like, what do they do? I get a lot of them, you'd be surprised. And, and so, so, or people who've retired from, you know, a, a major career, you know, I'm always trying to steer them towards something else. I don't like 
radical changes of chi. I kind of want people to like, they stop doing a lot of that, they have to start doing a lot more of something else, you know? So, so um, peak experiences mark as well, um, because you may not realize it, but it's very stressful. Yeah. So it's just, the, it's, the, it's the stress of it mm -hmm. or the pain of it that you're holding on. Well, it's, you're still gonna have the experience. Yeah, it's similar to that postpartum like depression you had when you finished your, your book. It is. It's a big milestone, oh, yeah. and once that, I, I actually got sick. I got sick. Yeah. Um, I, I, I had pushed so hard. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I pushed so hard that I, I actually got really sick, and and it took it took a few months. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> so, as far as self care goes, is there any universal thing that you could, any universal advice you could give to listeners? Something that they could do in a short amount of time, or you know, yeah. It's really important, especially in these times of, you know, of, of health crises that are going on. Um, you know, my good friend, Deirdre Courtney, who wrote the book on, on wrote a book on Yang Sheng, as a Peter Debbin, he's also a friend of mine. Yang Sheng is really important. Chinese medicine gives us such, such incredible gifts um, to understand how to take care of yourself. And I tell my students all the time, just you know, read the Yellow Emperor's Classic, the bottom half of page one, the top half of page two, basically tells you exactly how to live, but putting it into practice is really not easy in the Western world. And so the thing is about um, self-care that I think is really important is you need to act as if you were your own best mother. It doesn't matter what kind of mother you had, but but mother yourself. You know how you how you raise a child, for example. I say to people, so so if a child's hungry, you'd feed it, right? And they go, yeah. I said, so if you're hungry, why aren't you feeding yourself? And they go, well, because I said, don't 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 think about it. Just like you know come from this instinctive place saying, how can I remother myself? You know, I mean, fathering is also very important. I don't want to discount fathers at all, but their, their role is slightly different. They're, they're about expansion. They're about, you know, they're about um, helping you test your limits and, you know, seeing the possibilities. So I technically we father themselves as well. You know, it's like, I think we forget how to take care of ourselves because we're so driven by our minds. And I think the body has an innate wisdom um, now they're calling it the stomach brain, but apparently every organ has a nerve bundle that has a brain. And so I think we forget to listen to our bodies and our bodies are quite wise. And I talk about that a lot in my classes because, for example, there's markings in the face that show you need to eat differently or breathe differently or sleep more. But there's lots of markings that show you exactly what to do, you know, which is yeah. great. And what is asymmetry on the face tell you? Um, it can be a number of things. Usually because the two sides of the face have to do with the public and private sides. Um, it, it's just a, there's a dissonance between how you project in the world and how you feel inside or how you act out there and how you act at home. And, and it's not that dangerous. Um, I think people are a bit uncomfortable who have this. And, and, and yet, I, as much as the Chinese love balance, it's also not very comfortable being a person who has really balanced face. Um, some people don't hide as much as others. And some people get really threatened if they see someone who's like clear, like what you see is what you get. It can be scary um, because they, they, they kind of telegraph whatever they're feeling and other people get, get upset by that. So, so I, I do know that society kind of causes us to hide some of the deeper emotions. Um, I remember one time I was going through obviously grief at one period of my life and people say, how are you? And I didn't want to be like, you know, false. So I'd say, I'm really struggling. They'll go, Oh, Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. And they run away. <laughs> yeah. No one wanted to hear yeah. <laughs> that I wasn't okay. Just to say, I'm fine. I'm good. And it's like, I wasn't fine. And I wasn't good. So I just said it. And it's like, it didn't go over well at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? 
so, so that's that false kind of okay front when I wasn't okay. You know? so, it's when you realize it was just a rhetorical question. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and we've talked a lot about wrinkles. What other features do you read? Do you do iridology? No, no, no. no. Okay. Um, I, I actually, no, I, I look at, first of all, the vital features that correspond to basically the jing of an organ. And then I look at certain places for diagnosing organs. So um, I'll just give you an example. One of the things that I, I, I do with doctors, especially, which makes me quite happy, is teach them how they're also face readers. Because Western medicine is full of face readers. Yeah. Um, you know, you diagnose lupus by the butterfly rash. You know, you diagnose anemia by pale colors. And of course, one of the most common ones that both Western and Eastern medicine do is the you know yellow jaundice of the eyes and the liver. And so, I mean, that's one of the great places to check the liver is the eye whites. But, you know, so are other areas of the liver. So there's like this, it's kind of this blueprint, this map, this organ map that has, um, it shows where every organ can be looked at. So if I were to look at kidneys, I'd start and say, okay, how strong are the kidneys to begin with? I look at the size of the ears and the strength of the ears and, and, the, and the jing of the ears, right? And the jing in general there. And I would then go underneath the eyes and I'd look there and look at the chin as well. And so if I were working with like the physical kidneys, I would look under the eyes and see how hydrated someone is. I would look to see if, you know, they've overworked and not slept enough. I mean, all those things you can see around the eyes. But if they're going through an emotional aspect of the kidneys, which is fear, I will look at the chin because no place shows fear as well as the chin does. Hmm. And so if you see markings of the chin that are like um, lines or orange peel kind of skin or shadows, you're seeing a you know, crumpled chin. You're seeing a lot of fear. And people may not admit it. I mean, I had this one guy one time I said to him, so your chin's showing some fear. Oh, no, I never feel fear. I said, okay. I said, well, you also have some worry up here between your, your eyes. He goes, oh, no, I, I never worry. <laughs> I said, well, you told me about how your son is having some trouble, you know, with um, addiction. I said, so what do you feel? He goes, I don't know. I just, I just think about him a lot. I said, would you call it dread? He goes, oh, that's a good word. I said, well, in my dictionary, <laughs> dread is a combination of worry and fear. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, but it sounds better. It sounds like it sounds better. I go, okay. It's then dreading. <laughs> So he didn't want to own it, but both places, you know, the chin was crumpled and the, the area between the eyebrows, you know, right, right above the bridge of the nose was also, you know, lined. He had a lot, but he didn't want to call it that. I just thought it was great. <laughs> <laughs> and how does facial hair interfere with or help with your diagnosis? Like how can I, I like facial hair. I think it's great. But how, um, how can you <laughs> see like the, the texture of the skin on the chin when someone has a beard? That's where you. That's where you start palpating, and you start pulling the hair across and looking to see if you can find some stuff there. No, I just, I just, I just manipulate the. the I, just, I, I always ask before I can touch someone, but I, but I look. I just kind of look okay. and see like, what's there, you know. And does and you know, the, the filter as well? Because filter is fertility. Right. Mm -hmm. And does the color of facial hair, like if someone is fully bearded, and like my beard has four different hair colors, does that indicate anything? Like whether there's a patch of white somewhere you know, or I, I red. No, I mean, look, I, the Chinese have always said that when you have like, you know, early white or gray hair, you have extra wisdom. <laughs> it also means you've gone through some stress to, to gain mm. that wisdom for heaven's sakes. But, but you know, multiple colors of hair, they don't really talk about okay. too much. Um, so, and they don't really, like they, for example, um, 
the ability to grow facial hair is actually, you know, something they look at. It's the same thing with growing, you know, um, hair in the head. But, but they don't really look at colors so much on that one. They look at colors of, the, of facial markings for sure. But, but beer colors, no. And, you know, to, to the way I learned it, the, the ability to grow facial hair had a lot to do with, um, you know, the male hormones. So they would say, oh, some, some good testosterone if you can grow a good beard or mustache or whatever. It's like, oh, that's good. Or they also say you had lots of testosterone if you started losing hair. Like the saying in Chinese is very funny because my father was bald. And they would say, oh, good luck. And he'd say, why? He said, you'll never be, you'll never be a beggar. The saying is, you'll never, you'll never see a bald beggar. So when someone's bald, they have a little extra drive, a little extra liberty. Huh. <laughs> so, or losing hair is a little extra. So it's a little extra drive of all kinds. So it's actually not considered a bad thing at all. And what factor... For your heart. But other than that. What factor does makeup that people are wearing play in your ability to read? Usually when I'm doing a face thing, I ask them not to wear too much makeup okay. um, because obviously if you've seen makeup tutorials and things, my goodness, they can make a face, facial feature look different. They can you know, do the shading and make the nose look smaller and the cheekbones look bigger. And it's kind of like, you can get fooled. I mean, I don't get fooled by a lot of things because I'm, I'm really good at reading faces now, but, but you know, I can tell when someone's tweezed their eyebrows and all that, which is fine. But I, I makeup can definitely make you look different than than you are and you can do so much with it so i prefer to look at faces that are a little cleaner you know okay. it's easier to read let's put it that way yeah that's just so fascinating I, I could go on and on asking you questions but i, I know you do have some <laughs> other areas of expertise i have one more note written down about this before we do move on uh and that's animals okay. can you use this with animals that's really funny. So I have a number of students who are animal communicators and they have absolutely told me that, that it works with like animals. And I, I've had people say, can you read my dog? And it, look, I, I love dogs. I, I love animals, but I'm not the best animal reader, but I will say, I do know a couple of things. My uncle and I, my uncle Philip and I had some interesting conversations growing up. We talked about it one time. My family wasn't really big on pets, you know? So my uncle and I was the only one who had a pet. And he said, well, he chose a dog that had a really broad muzzle. He said, because they're friendlier. He said, when you have a narrow muzzle dog, they're like a one, one person dog, or maybe a two person dog. They don't like a lot of people. They only like a few people. Where the broader muzzles are they're just, they're, they're friendlier. It's like, you know, the lab is friendlier than a, a Pomeranian, for example. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with them. It's just that labs are friendlier. You know, they also eat a lot, but they have a broader muzzle. So he'd, he'd say that, or he'd say, he'd say you could read the Shen of dogs really easily um, because they they express they express feelings in their eyes you know that that puppy dog look oh my god who doesn't cave to that <laughs> you know, like, you know? whereas cats have a completely different look they stare at you like what like what are you like what <laughs> where's my dinner like what <laughs> that kind of you know different look so so yeah you can read the shed of animals really clearly you know and i think that's fascinating um i'm just not the best at it i, I one time had a woman show up at my office with a cockatoo and say can you read my cockatoo and i said I don't, I don't think so i said but i can look at the shed a little you know it's like <laughs> not my <specialty. laughs> all right i want to hear a little bit about five element feng shui if you can talk a bit about sure. that what is it sure. and, well, and how do you use it okay well, my crazy family, again, which I, I love them very much, um, was also involved in feng shui, mostly my great uncle and my uncle Alex. Um, and 
I, they were also very big investors in real estate. So when I wasn't sitting at the table watching my grandmother read faces, I would very often actually go out and look at open houses. So my mom loved to look at open houses. And it also included like office buildings and things. So the, the Chinese um, are very aware that animals, especially dogs and people, <clears throat> children, are pretty good at feeling energy. So I was encouraged to say things. Ooh, that closet's scary. And they would say things. You know, they, would, they, would, they would go, oh, okay, thank you. And they would very honor that. So I was kind of raised with this idea <clears throat> of um, feng shui. Feng shui was also a branch of Chinese medicine. It was called the outer body. It was actually um, designed to help um, environments um, that would be created to optimize someone's health. And so, for example, if you had a patient who was having issues with broken bones, let's say, they're breaking bones too easily, you'd also want to go to their house and check and make sure that their house wasn't too crowded because crowding can often repress liver chi, which causes reckless liver chi, which causes accidents, which causes broken bones. <clears throat> so they would go and look, or they'd ask someone if they could like, go fix their house and make wider pathways and, you know, more room where they're not bumping into things. And so they would literally try to prevent that Band-Aid effect of, of treatment where you treat someone, they go back to their own environment and it stays the same and it, make, it makes them go back to where they were. So I taught it for years as a CEU course, but these days it's been frowned upon a bit. I think it's because it's removed from Chinese medicine. It literally is the same five elements. It's in, it's, it's the same understanding that, um, you know, as you put on clothes or you, you know, create a bedroom that's very yin and nurturing, you're enhancing someone's health and that certain environments are more beneficial than others. And, and the best way I can describe, you know, how I do feng shui I call it Taoist design these days, so it makes me happy to think that it's you know, really in line with the Taoist idea of what was originally environmentalism in a way. How do you align to your environment, um, whether it's the, the, the sky or the, or the weather or the, whatever, you know, the, or the mountains or whatever you have. Um, there's something on the face that I look at in mountains and rivers, which actually tells people about um, what kind of landforms they associate with the most. So for example, if they have lots of bony features that are, that are stronger, they, they can't live in flat land. They, they won't do well um, unless they have like a multi-story multi dwelling, dwelling that they work in because they have amount, some mountainous features. And so there's things like that that I look at and then I, I try to help people um, balance their five elements um, with their environment. Um, some environments of course are multi-use, you know, the lobbies of, of buildings and things. So they should probably have something of all the five elements. But when you're doing your own environment, if you have some missing elements, you need to add those elements. So for example, my earth isn't so, isn't so strong. Um, it's one of the weaker ones in my five element balance. And so I make sure I have a lot of coziness in my house because it helps support that. I also do things like eat you know, root vegetables because it supports you know, that part of my body. I do things that I know are going to, to en enhance that element. And so the environment's wonderful for enhancing elements that you're deficient in. And yet most people persist in, in doing things that make the strongest element stronger. And I, I keep saying, you need to balance here. You know? mm. Like maybe not so many windows because they're so fiery. Maybe you want to have a bedroom that's a little darker so you can sleep in more and not have insomnia. I mean, very simple cures, by the way. Right. Five other cures. I love the practicality of this. Just hearing you in these few minutes talk about feng shui has is, is literally changed 
my perspective on it because I, I wasn't quite translating the environment, like the, the decoration of a house or the layout of a house to not so much be the thing itself, but based on how it causes the body to respond to it. That is what brings about the health benefits. And so that's, I'm still trying to wrap my brain around even how to state that. But (laughs) what you said earlier about when you find someone who has a lot of clutter in their house and they have a lot of broken bones, yeah, that clutter is not only a representation of who they are, but it's also preventing their chi from flowing freely. Right. And and the thing the thing that's interesting to me is that that feng shui is is basically concentrated common sense. It, it literally is that. Um, combined with what I think is important is good aesthetics. So I don't like things that are unattractive. It should, it should be beautiful to you. Now I'll just give you an example. I was actually um, in a ski resort area and a couple hired me to come look at their their ski um, basically mansion. Uh, <laughs> it was huge. And they were underneath a really big mountain. And I looked up and I said, wow, there's some avalanche danger here. And I said, have there been avalanches on this side of the mountain? They said, oh no, and once in a really long time there is, but it's the other side of the mountain that's dangerous. I said, well, you know, if there's a really big snow and it comes over the top of that mountain, it might. It probably won't hit you, but it'll definitely hit next door and maybe the house beyond that. And I said, so you need to be a little bit careful here. I said, I think you need to reinforce the roof. And this is kind of important. And I, I really nagged them about it. By the way, they were building it. It wasn't built yet. Okay. And I told them they had to do some major reinforcement. And it took a couple of years. There was a really huge, you know, winter, um, you know, lots of snowstorms. And the mountain um, did have a, um, a pretty big slide over the house next door, which got crushed. By wow. the way. And I'm really sad about this. I told them to warn their neighbors. It didn't get completely crushed, but it, was like, it definitely, you know, the roof caved in. And, and they, they were saved because of their reinforced roof. And I'm not saying it to, to brag or anything. It's just like, that was kind of obvious to me. Right. That was kind of like, did you look? And they yeah. go, oh, no, no, but it hasn't happened for a long time. It's like the 100-year flood. It's still going to happen. <laughs> just you don't know when it's going to happen in the 100 years. No, but it hasn't happened for 200 years. And I said, it's overdue. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like, so, so I don't. I don't think that feng shui is that mysterious, actually. What's mysterious about it is, is the ling, ling quality. And ling to me is a really important part of Chinese medicine. It's like, it's, it's about um, kind of like the, the particulate matter of, uh, I call it magic, but you know, it's just, it's, it's the cosmos, it's the universe. And it's like sunlight on the water or, or you know, stardust, moon dust. It's, it's, it's really magical and sunlight, you know, uh, on, you know, on, on newly, um, burst leaves that have like little drops of water. And sometimes we get very ling deficient. So the idea is that you actually get more in touch with your environment, not less. So I'm not a person who says, you know, your home is your castle and build a McMansion and stay inside. I actually believe you should have like, you know, bring the outside in and actually, I need to spend time outside too. So I I care a lot about, you know, that you have places to go that are really, um, really life enhancing that you know have flowers and bushes and trees and it's like i i really like the exterior part of it as well Mm -hmm. the liver needs it yeah i I spend time with trees i I live in the northwest i like trees a lot i like trees and water but water by itself isn't as fun as trees and water i like trees i can resonate (laughs) with that yeah so when your liver gets tired go out and hang with your favorite tree yeah Absolutely. And we have some gorgeous trees on, on the farm here. And yes, I'm 
often sitting underneath trees with my animals. So it's it's very yeah. healing. They're, they're very it's magical. You yeah, know, it's, it's it really if your liver is exhausted, go outside and spend time with your favorite plants. Yeah. Because it will feed your liver probably better than sour food. You know, it's like it's it's quite magical. Ling, let's give you another example. I had a client one time who had been in China studying really deficient. Um, the food didn't agree with him. The, the, the smog bothered him. I mean, everything about it was just a really hard experience. He came back looking kind of pasty and gray <clears throat> to Lillian. He said, I can't get my energy back. What do I do? And I said, okay, because it was May. I was at TCM Cong Congress in Rothenburg. I said, okay, here's what I want you to do. <clears throat> Let's just spend the summer going outside, lying on the grass, looking up at the clouds, and I just want you to spend time gathering Ling. He said, really? I said, yeah, you're so Ling deficient. I said, you're in a major city with lots of pollution. You didn't have any of the natural world. I said, go outside and do it all summer. I said, I guarantee by the fall, you'll feel better. So I saw him the next year, I said, Lillian, oh my God, that was the most amazing thing. And I said, I know, I know. <laughs> and for him, it's because he was very metallic. I had him look up at the clouds in the sky. If someone else was like, needed more water, I had him look at the, the water, I mean, whether it was a lake or a river or an ocean, it doesn't matter, whatever water, is good for them but i would literally have them absorb more of the natural world mm -hmm. because we're lacking that sometimes in our in our lives and so i want them to go and experience the natural world you know <laughs> it's really it's really important i find one of my most therapeutic spots here is some large boulders that we have and lying on those does that indicate anything just lying on boulders Rocks. Oh, that's earth that is like yeah. oh boulders. boulders are the best okay. oh my god i love boulders they're so wonderful yeah i wanted to go find one and bring it here but it was it doesn't naturally belong in my yard <laughs> so one day i'll find a place it has i love boulders <laughs> they're fabulous lucky you they're so cool i mean that's really getting in touch with like the strongest aspects of earth yeah and that's fabulous yeah yeah i i, I love that kind of stuff like people don't realize i you have to remember this is you know about the natural world and trying to trying to embody that and so you know i was, I was telling someone one time interesting idea in feng shui and that is the color green so so curious because what people love the color green but if you look out at nature let's say it's spring and you're I like i like to drive up to the mountains and there's all these trees that are like budding and right and, and you see all these different colors of green there might be like 15 shades of green right but if you try to paint 15 shades of green in your house it will look awful because green in nature has light in it and green when it's put on the walls is matte and it's not the same green so it, i mean it still can be helpful for the, for the liver but not as good as going outside and seeing that that green that's lit that's really helpful. right illuminated green <laughs> so much can you tell me a bit about the lotus institute Sure. My Chinese name is Lotus. Okay. It's actually Independent Lotus Blossom. That's my Chinese name. Really? It's Li Lei Leon. Mm -hmm. hmm. It's it means Li is independent, Lei is blossom, and Leon is lotus. So my name literally is Independent Lotus Blossom. <laughs> wow. So <laughs> my mom, my, my mom is so cool, but she was she was so funny. She said, "I'm really sorry, I didn't call you a different lotus name." I go, "Why?" She goes. I named you independent. Most lotuses get, get to be with other lotuses because you have to be alone a lot. I go, oh, okay. <laughs> I like being alone, by the way. But she was she always felt guilty that she called me independent because that was like she thought that was like not so nice that I had to be alone in my pond. But yeah, I, I the lotus institute is, is my company. Um, it's my school basically, and what I teach is a master face reading certification program. 
where basically um, I teach five modules, three of which are the main core ones, the Jing module, the Qi module, the Shen module. So I work with those you know, aspects of Chinese medicine very thoroughly on the face. I talk about all the different maps and you know the features and the shapes and sizes and colors and markings and basically everything. Um, how to read Shen especially is really important. And then I added two other ones, which was Ming, which is um, the idea of how to recognize destiny from the face with caution you can create your own destiny to some degree um but there is there's definitely signs of ming in your face which is why face ring has been used in the past as a prognosticator tool and i also talk about ling which is which is my newer version of bringing feng shui you know back into chinese medicine um and yeah people i, I think i've graduated probably over 200 students now most of whom use it you know, within Chinese medicine, but a lot, some of them use it for, as face readers, they actually are professional face readers, which I still think is really cool. <laughs> and so you have, and, or add it to women. you have in-person teaching in Washington, is that correct? I did. You did? I had it in Washington and also in, in Europe. I, I, I spent some time in Copenhagen, then we moved to Hamburg, then we moved to England. Um, as of this year, the last in-person class we had was February in Seattle. Mm -hmm. We were supposed to go to Bath when in May, of course, that got canceled. So now I'm doing it all online. I also offer five element feng shui, Taoist design, um, basically, um, which isn't, we haven't started that up yet. That'll probably start after the first of the year. And I also teach um, a workshop called the Golden Path Workshop is, is helping people figure out what their Ming is and how to manifest it. So I make them do the work. I don't just tell them what their Ming is. Okay. I help them figure it out. So that's, that's a fun workshop as well. And do you do all yeah. of that? So, so yeah, everything's online. Okay. And do you do all of your teaching through the Lotus Institute, or do you also teach at colleges, for example? Oh, I teach. <laughs> I have taught. I have taught at so many schools and conferences. I can't even tell you. Um, I'm always happy to teach for conferences. At the moment, of course, everything's online. Yes. But I used to go pretty much everywhere. You know, and I, I love teaching at schools because it's it's. I, I think what one of the things that I recognize is valuable is I have some understanding about things in Chinese medicine that aren't talked about very much, like Ling or like Ming or, um, I, or, or really understanding, for example, Jing in a way that um, isn't taught and also Shen, like Shen in TCM has been somewhat um, minimized, whereas in classical Chinese medicine, Shen is huge. And I think that Shen needs to be taught more. So I have a personal mission here too, you know, <laughs> I, like to, I like to help um, enhance the field. Right. So I care about it a lot. If we could potentially extend an invitation to you to come to Pacific Rim College or at least to teach online for us. I would be so happy to come there. Oh, my right. uncle used to live on Salt Spring Island. Oh, so really? I love that. Oh, oh my goodness. That was where I spent all of my summers in, in, uh, in adolescence. So really? I have, I almost moved there. I have a huge fondness. Yeah. I just had an issue with the border and I'm visiting my mom. So that's the only reason I didn't move there. I, I love it there. So I would be there in a second, as soon as travel can occur, because yeah. I could drive there. Okay. <laughs> take a ferry. <laughs> so, so happy. We will do it. Absolutely. That sounds great. Before we go, you, we've had a fascinating conversation about many things, but this, this concept of Ling, I'm really, I love, can you just briefly explain it's to huge, listeners what Ling is? Um, Ling is, the best way I can describe it is um, the magical, miraculous part of the universe. It's what makes shoots up in the spring. You know, it's, it's all the things that we consider so incredibly beautiful because they, 
they magnetize in a certain way. It's like the vibrational frequency of the cosmos, you know? And it's such an important part of Chinese medicine. So for example, if you look at a lot of the ancient formulas, and I don't, you know, so I don't treat, so I, but I do study. If you, if you look at a lot of the ancient formulas, they, they take into account where the people lived and what the climate was and what the conditions were. So if you live in a very damp place, you're definitely going to have damp conditions. And therefore you had to look at the place. And I've had a number of conversations with a lot of people. I have a lot of friends in Chinese medicine that we sit and discuss these kinds of nerdy things. And we've had discussions about how you have to adapt the formulas then, because if someone has a dampness, but they're not living in a damp climate, it's a different kind of dampness, you know? So we forget to remember the climate. And Sabina Wilms' new book is, is about celestial um, secrets. And I have to say, people don't recognize how celestial events are, are playing out. So for example, we're talking, uh, we started talking right after a major eclipse, a solar eclipse was happening. And I didn't realize, but at the, at the time of the eclipse, I just started dropping, I dropped my sugar bowl, which was really a pain. <laughs> I was putting sugar in my tea and I also spilled the tea. It's like, and I went, what's going on here? And I realized I was doing it exactly at the time of the eclipse. And I went, okay, I, I'm definitely being hit. And I can feel it. I can feel it. Wow. And I thought, what's it mean to be like having an interview during the eclipse? And I went, oh, that's kind of cool, actually. Maybe I'll get more insight. But there's celestial events do affect you. Like the moon, it pulls. And, you know, my sister was mentally ill. I used to talk to the psychiatric nurses when she was in the mental hospital. And it's anecdotal. But, you know, they all knew that psychosis increased during certain full moons especially and it's like it's known and yet they can't prove it it's like oh okay you know what it doesn't matter i've seen it so many times that i know it's true you know and so have the nurses and so have the psychiatrists too it's kind of known it's like the pull of the tides like we're water like we're 80 some percent water it's like don't you think the moon might pull us too of course it will so you know i, I always know there's a full moon my client's going to be more emotional. I'm aware of that. I'm very, <laughs> people, I'm good at making people cry anyway. And sometimes cry, crying is, you know, for joy, but, but people cry easily with me and in a full moon. Oh my goodness. People cry really easily. So, so we forget that, that Ling is kind of like that um, particulate matter that just is, it's very energized vibrational, you know, um, nanoparticles. I mean, it's just, I don't know what else to call it. And, and I think that we, don't talk about it enough in Chinese medicine, which is why I think it, it's the foundation of, um, of feng shui, um, which has gotten kind of far removed and a little bit superstitious. It's also the foundation of like, uh, let's give you an example of what, why we eat and what we eat and how we breathe and, what, and, and you know, how well we breathe. So there's these markings, like one's on the bridge of the nose that says that you're supposed to um, make more chi by breathing. No, but eating, sorry, sorry, eating. breathing is the, the next one. So, the, so this one is right across the pancreas line, the pancreas marking. And anyway, this line right here says that you're supposed to eat food that has a lot of ling in it. <laughs> so there's a reason why grass-fed cows make better butter than cows that are kept in a barn. And so what you're doing is you're eating ling, okay? Why fresh tomatoes off the vine taste better than hothouse tomatoes. You're eating ling. So when you have like a line across the bridge of your nose, your body's asking you to eat foods with more ling. It's asking you to eat foods to transform into chi. And we, we, in Chinese medicine, we learn food transforms into chi. Well, how does it transform? Well, transformation is Taoist alchemy. Taoist alchemy always involves fire. So if you don't enjoy your food, it's not gonna transform as well. <clears throat> It'll just be like bad gasoline. 
versus superior gasoline. So when there's joy involved in a ripe tomato, you're getting more transformable chi, potentially, than if you have a tomato that's like styrofoam. So, so you're actually trying to eat ling. And then if you look at the line on the, um, the, the philtrum, which is a really powerful place in the face, probably the most powerful place in the whole face, it's saying you're not breathing enough. You're supposed to breathe in the cosmos, right? And breathe out all the, the, you know, all the, all the stuff, you know, the toxins, the, the, the emotions, whatever. Breathe out and then breathe in some more. You're supposed to be breathing in all this ling and it frees you into that creative place. So I always start my writing with some deep breathing, really deep breathing. So when I start to write, I'm full, I'm full of ling. And it helps, it helps that ability to, to, to be creative. Um, and so I, I really think that ling is under taught. <laughs> I think it's a really important idea in Chinese medicine and that we need to, to, to bring it in more and to live it more. Thank you for that. Yeah, you're welcome. No, I think it's really, it's, it's fabulous stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's a wonderful tutorial. Yeah, so a lot of people are Ling deficient. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That's why people in New York go to Central Park. Central Park, thank God they have a park there. Can you imagine no park? It's like, that's really right. valuable. It's Ling. Yeah. Birds and twittering and, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what are you most excited about right now or what are you working on? Well, I'm working on my, my book about Ming and what I call the golden path. That's my current project. Okay. Um, I just finished a cookbook. Oh, did you? <laughs> on, 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 it's called Divine Chinese Cuisine. It's volume one of a three-volume series, but I finished volume one. I'm working on volume two also, but that's, that's a secondary project. But yeah, I, I did a, a cookbook because I my, my grandfather was a fantastic chef, so, <laughs> so I finished a cookbook. Can, now I'm working on the golden path book. Okay. It's like, stop. <laughs> Can you repeat the title of the cookbook? Because we cut out just a little bit when you said it. Called, it's called Divine Chinese Cuisine. Okay. Um, and because I have a lot of food intolerance and allergies, I just have to say I created a dumpling wrapper that's gluten-free that is amazing. <laughs> it's just the, it's like the best dumpling wrapper ever. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's great fun. And it's, I, I, it's, it's for the allergies. Stuff, but you can actually go use wheat and you can go ahead and use you know traditional um, Chinese sauces and things. But I made sure that anybody who has allergies can cook all this food okay. as well. And where's the book available? Is it published? It's either on my website. Okay. Yeah, it's on lotusinstitute.com okay. or it's on Amazon. Yeah, it's, 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 yeah. The thing is, I didn't market it very much because there was kind of a, there's kind of a big anti-Chinese sentiment this year, which is too bad, but I just, I also mm. really terrible at marketing. So I just put it out there. Okay. People have to find it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm a slow starter. <laughs> and the new book that you're working on, when are you expecting that to be available? And can you give a, a brief paraphrase of what it's about? for a while now um but the f what what i um i expect it hopefully be out next fall okay. we'll see um it's, it's it's coming along basically the book is about how to recognize what your mandate from heaven is and then how to and how to um, manifest it so to me what i learned you know years ago is really exciting that that the symbol dao is actually a face running on a path the original pictogram is a face running on a path hmm. and that's why it's called the golden path and so the idea is in Taoist alchemy that you transform lead into gold that you, that you take that you're, you're a human person and become your most highest you know spiritual self and so it's a it's a book about um you know that and and how to manifest that so 
it, it takes all the years I've been teaching about um, Ming as, as well as all the Golden Path consultations that I've done over the last you know, 35 years. And it's, it's really about, it's kind of a workbook, how, how, to, how to understand that we all have purpose and we all need to find a life of meaning in order to live a long time. And I think I started out working with this because I, I wanted people to live longer. My father died too young in my opinion and he always wanted to, to you know, retire and write. And that's what I realized if he'd been writing along the way, maybe he wouldn't have died as soon. I see a lot of people who die, especially with cancer, whose talents are unused. And I, I really want people to use all that, all that wonderful jing that they haven't used yet, all the talents and abilities that they brought in um, in their life to create that life of meaning. So yeah, that's the best way to describe it right now. I don't have the book jacket, you know, paragraph right. yet. <laughs> so I have, I work with a lot of colleagues and who help people with their mission, their personal mission. And this sounds very comparable, very parallel. How would this differ from perhaps the contemporary personal development work that people do to? Oh, and I think that's so valuable. You know, years ago when I did, I taught at a, at a private school um, as a student teacher with um, kids who back then were called mentally retarded. And I, I realized that all of us were, this one little boy named Rex, we're trying to show him how to write his name in different ways. So people are coming at the same thing and the more the merrier as far as I'm concerned. I don't really believe in competition. I believe we all have ways of looking at things. So for me, what I, what I really focus on here is that the face is an amazing um, uh, access point um, that shows you potential. It shows you what you're capable of doing. It shows you what you what you um, basically are supposed to be doing. For example, I used to joke about this a lot, but I have a really strong spirit, but a not terribly strong body. As, as efficient as I could travel, and I'm a very efficient traveler, my body really didn't handle jet lag well at all. It really kind of broke down in a way. And so I recognized that um, I wasn't supposed to do as much. And of course, doing takes away from being, and being is what I have to do to be, to be a writer. So I know that my body is designed to write more than to travel, that's for sure. And so you can see that the, the limitations aren't limitations, they're actually boundaries of existence. And people often fight against the boundaries of who they are and what they're capable of doing. And I, I used to joke about it, two of my superpowers are standing up for a long time. I can stand well. I can't hike to save my life, but I can stand. <laughs> and I can walk, obviously, pretty well, too. But, but standing, I can teach a class for, you know, days, standing. I can also talk for a long time. And, and mind you, I used to be a singer, so that's why I've got good lungs. But, you know, those are superpowers. The other things I absolutely cannot do. I can't do math. Oh, my God, I'm so bad at math. <laughs> you know, I, I, <laughs> there's so many things I can't do. But I do know what I can do. And, all, and I, I say to people all the time, you have exactly the body you're supposed to have. This body is designed to help you do your ring. So when you're trying to wish for something else, why wish for it? This is who you're supposed to be. You give it all the tools that you need. So I try to help people also get over body dysmorphia by realizing this is, this is the vehicle that you're driving. So enjoy it. You know, it's, it's, got, it's got all the messages that you need to, to hear to tell you where you're going. Wow, that's great. I can't wait to, to read that when that's available. <laughs> Thank you. And this has been such a fun conversation. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah. And you've got so much more to offer. I know we could probably do this for many hours more, but uh, right. <laughs> where can people, can you give some of the specifics where people can learn more about you and the Lotus Institute? Yeah. The best way is to go to my website. It's www.lotusinstitute.com. And it's pretty self-explanatory. I also, uh, we do have a Facebook page that I always forget to 
um, fix and to, and to add things to. We do have a Facebook page. Um, yeah, but mostly the, the website's the best place to go. And of course, the face ring books are available on Amazon. People are still really attached to the original edition, but there is a second edition that's been out for a while now. So, so yeah, they're there. Okay, great. And there is actually a textbook, so I'm also very happy about. So. Yeah, and I think we we have your the face reading book in our bookstore, but I will make sure if we don't to get in the newest edition. Thank you very much. Thank you. I've learned so much well, today. Just for the record, um, you have all the signs of a writer, so you might want to consider that, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, you speak well, too, by the way, but you have multiple, you have all the signs of a writer. Just yeah. throw, I throw that in there. <laughs> it, it's been, that's been percolated for, for many years, but I appreciate that that nudge. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're <laughs> Can't help myself. It's like it's, it's occupational nope. hazard. I stay home and hide so people don't get red. <laughs> no, it's great. I appreciate it. It's uh, free advice for me. So thank you. And, yeah. and thank you for all the information and wisdom you've shared with our listeners. It's really been a great conversation. Yeah. And for all the work that you've thank done you. for bringing, I don't know if you're responsible for bringing face reading to North America, but it certainly so sounds like you've been instrumental in it. Yeah, this, uh, there, there are other face readers in the world. I want to give them a shout out to most of them are Chinese and they're, they're not doing Chinese medicine. That's for sure. But also too, there's a different way of looking at the world. And I guess this is the benefit of being half Chinese and half, you know, uh, you know, you know Caucasian and American um, German, so to speak, um, is that I kind of helped bridge that gap, I think, between um, the Chinese teachings and the, the Western world. So that that's, that's been great fun. Yeah. Made, made a point of like why I'm mixed, <laughs> you know, so it wasn't so easy to do when I was younger. Well, thank you. And I look thank forward you. to connecting with you again. Okay, great. I look forward to it too. Thanks so much. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Lillian Bridges. For more information about Lillian and to see her programs and books, please visit lotusinstitute.com. Also, stay tuned for PRC online courses and face reading from her colleague C.T. Holman, featured in Pacific Rim College Radio, Episode 25. And look forward to Lillian's visit to our Victoria campus to offer teaching as soon as travel restrictions lift. If you are interested in studying Chinese medicine, the School of Acupuncture and Chinese Medicine at Pacific Rim College offers world-renowned multi-year programs, including world's only study options combining acupuncture with Western herbal medicine and holistic nutrition. Visit PacificRimCollege.com to learn more. Also, don't forget to check out our other online education in Chinese medicine by exploring the amazing course offerings at PacificRimCollege.online including many courses featuring other guests of this podcast. If you are interested in receiving clinical services in holistic nutrition, herbal medicine, and acupuncture in Chinese medicine, the student clinic at PRC provides more than 7,000 annual treatments. Live holistic nutrition and herbal medicine consultations are both available online, while acupuncture and Chinese medicine treatments can be had at our Victoria campus. Free treatment options are available in all areas. Visit the student clinic at PacificRimCollege.com for more information and to book your appointment. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, see what healing your facial map might lead you toward.